Now, this is lesson number 11, and we call it the glorious appearing and the battle of Armageddon. We combine those two together because they're basically the one and the same. When the Lord returns in what is called the second advent, that is the day of the Lord. That is the great battle of Armageddon. Uh, he doesn't show up and have a party. The Lord Jesus shows up and annihilates mankind. <laughs> so I, I'm going to preach ahead of myself. I, let me go ahead and work through this curriculum that we spent so much time writing so we can uh, unfold it. The Lord's long-awaited divine appearing to mankind is spoken of often in the Old Testament, being prophesied several times by the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. You got that many prophets talking about it. It's a done deal. So the Jews knew that their Messiah was coming. They were expecting it. And Israel longed to see this day. What they failed to see was that the prophets had foretold two divine appearances, a first and a second advent. That's what they didn't get. And I think if you're any kind of student of the word, you recognize that in the, in the Gospels, when you see Jesus coming and they're recognizing that this is the Son of God, this is their Messiah, they're expecting the millennial kingdom. They're expecting some kind of military kingdom. And the Lord Jesus is having to tell them over and over again, that's not what I've come for this time. It's not, it's not your place to know the times and the seasons the Lord has set into his hand. They said in Acts 1, have you come at this time to establish the kingdom? He said, you don't even need to worry about that right now. Just go preach the gospel into all the world. Even the, uh, the apostles who had spent three and a half years with Jesus still didn't get a first advent and a second advent or a first coming and a second coming. The first advent, and we get that term from the Latin or the Vulgate Bible, which means the arrival or coming into view or, or being. This, the first advent was the arrival of Jesus Christ as an infant, born to redeem mankind. And so that was prophesied in Isaiah, Micah, and Hosea, and among other places. And the first advent was defined by the Word made flesh, fulfilling the prophecies of Savior. So the Lord's going to fulfill all the prophecies, but what the folks didn't understand back in his day was that he was going to do it in two rounds. When he came as a baby, he was going to fulfill the prophecies of Savior, saving and redeeming mankind. He was not going to fulfill the prophecies of king, warrior, leader in that regard. It was going to be redeemer. The first appearance of God was in humility. And the form of a servant being ultimately rejected, beaten, spit upon and crucified upon a sinner's cross. And for this reason, much of Israel, almost all of Israel, totally missed the hour of their visitation. And that's what Jesus lamented over in Luke 19. He said, how I would have longed to gather you under my wings. But behold, in a sense, he said, you missed the hour of your visitation. They were looking for this great military leader. And you can't blame them. They were under military occupation by Rome. They've been under military occupation before that by the Greeks. They've been under military occupation before that by the Persians. They've been under military occupation before that by the Babylonians. They were ready for some redemption, but they didn't get it. They had to receive their God by faith, not by favor. They were wanting God to do for them without them ever having to do for God. So they totally missed it. And so they were looking for God to come first and foremost as a Lord and conquering king and not as a redeeming savior. But what we talk about with the glorious appearing and the day of the Lord or the battle of Armageddon, this, in fact, is the Lord's second advent. And I think we need to stop and add in there uh, the, the rapture, which is to take place for the church, is not the second advent. Because in the rapture, the Lord Jesus doesn't come to the earth. He comes to the clouds with the angels and calls all of us up. So shall we be forever with the Lord. But the second advent, he literally comes back to the earth and he doesn't leave because after the battle of Armageddon, he establishes his millennial kingdom, which is what everybody was looking for. 
In fact, only the revelation in chapter 20, and we'll get to it in next week's uh, lesson, only the revelation finally lets us know how long that kingdom lasts. They knew it was a kingdom, but the revelation tells us it's a thousand-year kingdom. So before that, they didn't know how long it was going to last. They just knew there was one coming. So the second advent will be the total opposite of the Lord's first appearing. So you think about the Lord's first appearing. Baby wrapped in a swaddling uh, garment in a borrowed manger on the bottom half of a house with all the animals. Because there's no room in the inn. Mother is a teenage girl, terrified. I mean, this is a very humble appearing of God. But the second advent, the total opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> Revelation 19, 11 and 12 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Think about that. Jesus Christ comes to make war. That'll shut all the hippies up pretty quick. His eyes were as a flame of fire, not ga-ga-goo-goo. No, flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. On the day of his appearing, they start, everybody starts declaring his name. His name shall be called Wonderful Counsel of the Mighty God. You shall call his name Jesus. Here, nobody knows his name but he himself. Total contrast for the second advent. I'm, we taught this at Christmas time. I'm so glad we came to know Jesus at the first advent. Because you're either going to get to know him through the first advent, which is the Christ child and the Savior, or you're going to meet him for real at the second advent. And that day, the Bible will see him in a moment. The Bible says no man can stand. They'll all be wiped out. What a contrast between the newborn babe in a manger dependent upon the nurture and protection of a father and mother. His first appearance in Jerusalem fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, riding upon an ass, upon a colt, which is a male ass, the foal of a, an ass. That means the young, the baby. So that Jesus Christ fulfilled that. He came into Jerusalem riding on a young baby male donkey. That's, that's the first time he rides into Jerusalem in victory. Before he's crucified. His second appearance to Israel will be upon a white war horse. <laughs> so you got a, a young baby male donkey. You know, Jesus' feet could probably touch the floor, you know, because it's a young male donkey. The second time he shows up, it's on a war horse. I just, you see the contrast over and over again, which I think is so powerful. We must realize that the first course of business upon the Lord's return is to destroy his enemies. And if we can understand that, we'll understand the balanced side of our God. We are running out of grace and mercy in this dispensation of grace. The, the church age is coming to an end. And as the church age comes to an end, you're going to see grace and mercy dry up and you're going to see the severity of God begin to come into place. Just like when the dispensation of the law began to dry up, you began to see grace and mercy really heavily define the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's fulfilling the law and he's bringing it to a completion to kick off the church age, but he's extending a lot more grace and mercy than Moses would have. But as the church age comes to a completion, you're going to see grace and mercy dry up. You're going to see Christians dropping dead just like they did in the book of Acts, early days, you're going to see judgment coming upon nations, and then the tribulation's going to hit, because this thing is ramping up. There's no, in a sense, trumpet that blows it and all, blows a horn, and all of a sudden everything turns the page overnight. These things transition, and they fade in and out. And so we're seeing at the end of this dispensation, we're going to see more and more judgment coming. We're already seeing judgment upon the nations. We're seeing judgment upon our nation. 
We're seeing an increase in the intensity of the, of the symptoms of Matthew 24. Earthquakes in diverse places, plagues and famines and pestilence and wars and rumors of wars. Mercy and grace is running out as, as this divine judgment is beginning to creep back into the earth. We can't forget that Jesus Christ is ultimately the righteous judge. And when he comes back the second time, it is to wipe out his enemies. To which you and I say, hallelujah, we are not his enemies. We're his children. That's why we have to get out there and tell as many people as possible. Because we don't want them to cross over into this thing, into the tribulation. Tim LaHaye points out that verses 11 and 12 that we just read, they reveal the Lord's threefold nature at the second advent. They reveal that he is the righteous judge, he is the righteous warrior, and he is the righteous king. When he came in the first time, he was just savior. Now, people by faith called him my God and my king, Lord, but he was just fulfilling the prophecies of savior. Here he comes back and he is righteous judge, he is righteous warrior, and he is righteous king. This is what they've been looking for all along. Again, they just totally didn't see that there were going to be two advents divided by a church age. The church was a total mystery. Paul said, behold, I show you a mystery. And that was the church age. It was hidden from everyone. Again, even the apostles right before Pentecost didn't get that there was going to be a church age. They were looking for the kingdom to be established then. The day of the Lord will reveal his nature as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lion and the lamb. But the first time he came as the lamb for slaughter. The second time he's coming as the lion to slaughter. Again, the two aspects of God contrasted. That's why, as Christians, we can't just settle on one aspect of God. We have to study all the aspects so we know the fullness of our God. Romans, again, says the goodness and the severity of God. So the day of the Lord. I I like this. When you read this term in the New Testament, you'll understand what it's referring to. The second advent is also called the day of the Lord. His second coming is called his glorious appearing, but it's also called the day of the Lord. Titus 2.13 refers to it as his glorious appearing. This will be a day of divine judgment and war. Consider the following descriptions of the day of the Lord, because these are not pleasant. This is what we preached at the Christmas Eve service. I don't think there's ever been such a judgmental Christmas Eve service ever preached, but I've been studying all this for three or four months, so you couldn't help but it come out at Christmas Eve service. In fact, one visitor went home and told his wife, wow, you never heard that preached on Christmas Eve. Well, this is the Bible. What else are you going to preach on Christmas Eve? First Advent versus the second Advent. Felt like a perfectly good sermon to me. <laughs> it shall come. The day of the Lord is, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. That's the day of the Lord. Destruction. Every man's heart shall melt. That's terrifying. Nobody's going to be confident, cocky, arrogant in that day. Cruel. The Bible describes it as cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger. God is, in a sense, ticked off, but ticked off doesn't do it justice. Cruel wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. He's wiping everything out. A day of vengeance where his sword will be made drunk with the sinner's blood. Think about that play on words. The Lord's sword will be drunk with the blood of sinners. It it will be bathed in the blood of his enemies. Just totally wiped out. A day no one escapes. There's no one getting by this. A time of doom for the nations. (laughs) All nations will be judged, the Bible teaches us. We'll get into it next week with the the lesson on the final judgments in the millennial kingdom. 
I'm starting to begin to see that there'll be some nations that are just totally wiped out and that are no longer allowed to be nations anymore because of what they've done with the gospel. And nations rise and fall. And the Bible tells us he sets all nations in their boundaries as it pleases him. But there's a day coming called the judgment of the nations. And actually, when you study the Gospels, you'll see about the sheep and the goats is in reference to the nations. And some get to uh, be entered into the millennial kingdom and some never exist again. And so this is a doom, a time of doom for all nations. We understand some nations are way more accepting to the gospel than others. Some have totally rejected the gospel for 2,000 years. What will be said of them? What will the Lord say to them in the day when all nations are judged? We'll get into it next week, but that'll get your appetite wet for it. A great and terrible day no man can survive. And a day of darkness and not light. This is the day that's coming at the end of the tribulation. This is the great day of the Lord. This is the glorious appearing. This is the day when the Lord finally gets to seek his vengeance upon wicked mankind. (laughs) You realize how much mercy he is having on us. You realize how much he is putting up, not with us, because we're his children. We're just dumb sometimes and rebellious and stubborn. But how much mercy is he having on on pagans and Satanists and those that persecute Christians and those that martyr Christians and those that seek homosexuality and pedophilia? He's having tremendous amounts of mercy and even restraint right now. The Bible tells us that mercy rejoices against judgment. Mercy would rather prevail than judgment. But there's coming a time when it's going to be all he can do and he's going to have to let this aspect of his nature settle the tables. The Bible says of, uh, of Canaan land, when he told Abraham, he said, you can't have what I promised you yet because the sin of the land has not been filled up yet. And what that lets you know is there comes a level where the Lord says, that's all the sin the land can handle. And now I must wipe it out. What this is telling us is there's going to come a time when the sin of the earth will have filled up and the Lord will silence it. You see that in Sodom and Gomorrah when the Lord comes down with the two angels and they, they say, let us go down to see if it's as bad as we hear it is in heaven. So that kind of gives you another picture that the sound of sin, the testimony of sin reaches into the heavens. And when it reaches into the heavens, the Lord has to silence it because now it's getting on his righteous nerves <laughs> to say it as best we can understand it. So what's the setting when the Lord returns? Right before the Lord's return, a bulk of Israel will have fled into the wilderness of Edom. That's kind of south and east of Jerusalem across the river Jordan to the mountains. That's because the Antichrist comes to power, breaks his covenant with Israel and begins a great anti-Semitic persecution. You can already feel it in the air right now. Uh, Anytime Israel defends itself right now, all the media idiots... All the Hollywood idiots, everybody's anti-Israel. Everybody jumps on the bandwagon for Palestine. The hypocrisy there has been pointed out ad nauseum. But you can already feel the spirit of anti-Semitism, anti-Israel. It's ramping up again. A remnant of Israel will still be in Jerusalem because just like all of God's people, they don't always obey. (laughs) And the armies of the world and the enemies of God will have gathered themselves together in three locations and three pursuits. So, The day that Jesus Christ comes back, the enemies of God in military form will have gathered themselves in three locations to do what they've always wanted to do. Mock God and annihilate God's people. So the first place they'll be gathered, number one, by the prompting of the three unclean spirits, the armies of the east will be in the valley of Jezreel 
to await the Lord's return and do battle with him. That's, the, that's Armageddon. That's this massive valley we'll see here in a few pages. Number two, a great flood of military people will be moving against the remnant of God's people in Edom. The Bible says that the Lord gave them wings and they fled to Edom and, and the devil caused a great flood to come after them. That's a military term, a flood of enemy, a flood of troops. It says the ground will open up and swallow them. Uh, the, the earth will help them. We don't know what that means fully. Maybe it's like the gainsaying of Korah when the earth opens up and swallows these folks to hell. But we know that there's another onslaught of Antichrist forces against the remnant of Israel he hears is hiding out in the mountains. The third place is that nations will be gathered against Israel or Jerusalem. So you see armies gathered together to kill Jesus Christ, like that's going to win. And then armies gathered in two other places to wipe out the Jews. I mean, this, this cycle doesn't stop. The devil has no new scheme, no new plan, no new directive. It's the same thing over and over again. It is as though these three offensive movements against God Almighty and his people demand his action. With the enemies knocking at the remnant in Edom, with the enemies knocking at the doors of Jerusalem, with the enemies sitting there in the, in the valley of Jezreel mocking God, God says, fine. <laughs> you want some of this? Do you really? They, of course, pagan sinner mankind has been saying that for 6,000 years. Hath God really said God does not see. He's not going to reward us for our wickedness. And the Lord says, the, I think probably there'll be one last heart murmur that says, whatever, God. And it'll go, ding. And the Lord will say, it's full. The scales have now been tipped and it's time to silence wicked mankind once and for all. Once again, the focus will be on Israel. I think hopefully over the last 11 weeks, you've seen that this is all about Israel over and over again. The tribulation is all about Israel. Israel will repent and cry out to their God, and once again, God will hear their cry and deliver them. And you see a national repentance and a national revival prophesied about in Isaiah, Zechariah, Hosea, and Matthew. Jesus said in Matthew, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And on that day, they'll rejoice and say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord to deliver us. That's a prophecy for yet future. The battle of Armageddon will be Satan's final attempt to annihilate God and his elect nation, Israel. So we see it all culminates. It all comes back around full circle. There's nothing new here. Even the place where it's taking place at is nothing new. We're not fighting in Johannesburg. We're not fighting in Berlin. We're not fighting in New York City. We're back at Jerusalem. We're back at the Valley of Jezreel. We're back in Edom. These are like the places where everything happens in the Bible over and over and over and over and over again. The devil's just that stupid. And thinks he can win. So look at the battle versus the campaign because it is almost cliched or it's, it is the, the uh, trademark term, the battle of Armageddon. But that is actually a misnomer. And we need to clarify that, though we'll always call it the battle of Armageddon, just like we always call it the gifts of the Spirit, though 1 Corinthians 12 calls it the manifestations of the Spirit. And we wrote 12 lessons to prove that. So <laughs> the term battle is misleading. The Greek word used for battle is polemi or a campaign or war. So you're talking about a campaign or a war versus a battle. Wars and campaigns are made up of numerous battles. So to say this is the battle of Armageddon makes it sound like there's just one battle on this day. And there's not. There are actually three battles the Lord fights on this day. This is something I'd never heard taught before. But everybody agrees on this. All the eschatologists and the prophecy experts 
The campaign of Armageddon appears to be comprised of three distinct battles on the day of the Lord. Now, the battle we would call the campaign of Armageddon, it only lasts one day. But the, and the Lord is in glorified form on a, on a supernatural horse because this ain't Flicka he's coming down from heaven on. I mean, <laughs> or Mr. Ed. I mean, this is, this is a supernatural war horse. So it's not like, you know, he has to mount up. I mean, he, he's here and then he's there and then he's there. I mean, it's, it's instantaneous. So three battles in one day is very it's easy to do. The Lord was disappearing and reappearing after he was resurrected just to have meals with his disciples. He can disappear and reappear to wipe out his enemies as well. <laughs> the total rebellion of mankind at this final showdown is summarized in Psalm 2. It says, why have the heathen raged and the pagans imagined a vain thing? They've gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the Bible says, and the he that sits on the throne shall laugh. I mean, I can almost see the Lord coming on his horse just laughing. <laughs> this is going to be so quick. <laughs> Amen. So read Psalm 2 when you get a chance. We had, to, again, this is already six pages. We, we omitted a lot of stuff just to keep it brief. The saints of God will return with the Lord in this mighty campaign. So we will be with the Lord. Uh, Jude 14 and 15 says, Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. To execute judgment upon all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We will come back with the Lord for this battle. Many have pointed out this is like our honeymoon. We are joined to the Lord. The, the bride of Christ uh, is, is presented to the Lord. And our honeymoon is war. I mean, that's just like the husband to tell the wife on the honeymoon, you want to go do something fun? Let's go parasailing. Let's go cliff diving. Let's go, I don't like this. The Lord's going to say, you want a guy who's going to do something fun? Let's go have vengeance on all your enemies. Really what happens is he does all the work we just watch. Because there's no evidence we ever do anything. We just stand and we get to watch. And there'll be a righteous indignation in us. Because even the angels say, Lord, you are just and true for doing this. Now, you can tell we've got some hippie in us and we've got some like puppy love in us when it bugs us that the Lord has already prophesied he's going to wipe out everything that's left and be righteous in doing so. We're wanting, where's the mercy? He's been extending it for seven years as he's ramped up 21 judgments. These that are left would just as soon rape your baby and cut your wife's head off as say uncle. That's how wicked the earth is. So you can tell how Americanized we are and how politically correct and false love we are when we're studying about the righteous judgments of God. And it bothers us that for our spiritual honeymoon, we're going to watch the destruction of the nations. It's going to happen. Whether you get your mind renewed to it or not. <laughs> it's just what the Lord's going to do. This is what stuck out to me. Uh, that last part of verse 15, their hard speeches, which they, the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How much hard speech is there right now against God? And even us, every once in a while, we, we've said something hard against the Lord. Well, Lord, if you mean it, you better do it. You better watch. Some of the word of faith error taught us to be cocky like that with God. And that has bugged me to the nth degree. Well, Lord, you said it. You better do it. Mm. Careful. He is God. You are not. A please goes a long way when you're using faith with the Lord. Lord Almighty, have mercy on me. You said, you said in your word, Lord, have mercy on me. 
Your son or daughter. Ha- not. See, that's so American. That's so, you know, 16-year-old daddy's girl, buy me a canary yellow BMW because you said. No, no, that's one of the errors of some of the faith doctrine. Revelation 19, 14, and 15. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. We apparently get white horses too. <laughs> Amen. Horses don't go to heaven, but there are horses in heaven. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's how we know it's redeemed saints. Fine linen. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with the rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So we go with him, but there the sword comes out of his mouth. It doesn't come out of our mouth. We just observe. As prophesied, the Lord returns in the air with his holy angels and his holy saints. We don't do any of the fighting. The Lord, this is the Lord's battle. These are his enemies. The Lord has several weapons. Now, this is pr- profound here. The Lord has several weapons in his arsenal with which he will destroy his enemies on this day. So you have to search a lot of the scriptures. But number one, uh, Isaiah says the breath of his lips will destroy them. Just breathing upon them will destroy some of them. Yeah. Zechariah says supernatural flesh consumption. Now, if you'll go and read uh, Zechariah 14, 12, it says they will stand and in standing their flesh will be consumed, their eyes will be consumed, and their tongue will be consumed. Now, I read that and it instantly reminded me of the final scene of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I realized how biblical they were because they opened the Ark of the Covenant and the angel of death comes out. I know it's Hollywood, but they studied the Bible quite thoroughly to write it. And all those Nazis who've been tormenting the Jews... Their flesh melts, their eyes melt, and their tongue melts right there in the presence of God. And I remember thinking, that was a little gross. But when I read this and studied, I went, that's Indiana Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Go, George Lucas. You read your Bible. Hey, I'm ashamed. I've studied the Bible for 20 plus years, and I've never seen that verse. They're tied it to Indiana Jones. (laughs) Zechariah 14, 13 says, by confusion and turning upon one another. Some of them will just kill each other which the Lord has used that technique over and over again in the Old Testament. By the hand of Judah, Zechariah 14 tells us that at the battle of Jerusalem, some of Judah will kill their enemies. The the remnant that's still there will fight and defend themselves. In flaming fire, 2 Thessalonians says, I like that. He'll appear in flaming fire with his holy angels. He'll just burn some of them. Maybe that's the consuming flesh. We don't know. But these are just all these different descriptors that the prophets were seeing, trying to write down as fast as they could what they saw was going to come to pass. By the brightness of his coming, that'll just destroy his enemies. And then, of course, the one we're the most familiar with, the sword of his mouth. It'll just, him speaking will just destroy his enemies. And, of course, then the prophet said it's like stomping down grapes in the winepress of his wrath. And when you stomp grapes, what happens? Splash, splash. You make juice. That's what the Lord's coming to do. It's been prophesied. Now, what I like that we haven't ever touched as American worshipers much is um, the psalmist said, I will, sing your, I will sing of your mercies and of your judgment. And uh, Ginger and Wendell and I had discussions about, we don't hear any worship songs about the judgment of God. And then Wendell pointed out, what about the battle hymn of the Republic? My eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. He's trampling down his enemies where the grapes of wrath are stored. You have the battle hymn of the Republic sings about this day, about the Lord Jesus Christ stomping his enemies to mush. But 
you know, in this modern worship movement, you don't hear any songs about the judgment of God because we're too busy still being taught how to hug people and snuggle up in the beard of Jesus. But the psalmist inspired by God said, I will sing of your judgments. It's coming. He still is the righteous judge, even if we don't like to hear that. So what's the battle itinerary? Because every battle has a good strategic plan, and the Bible reveals one for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible records that he will confront his enemies in three locations, delivering Israel and Jerusalem, but destroying the wicked. So the first place he shows up on the great day of the Lord is Edom. It isn't directly at Armageddon, but it's Edom and Basra. It's kind of the same location. This is the mountainous region, also the city of Petra, to the southeast of Jerusalem, across the River Jordan to the mountainous region. Wonderfully enough, the Lord's first destination when he returns is Edom and Basra, the exact place where the remnant of Israel will flee to escape the wrath of Antichrist. And we give you enough scriptures there to confirm it. The Antichrist will send a contingent of his forces to wipe out the remnant of Israel seeking refuge in these mountains. Edom is the first place the Lord's heavenly sword will fall. Isaiah 34 says, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edom and upon the people of my curse to judgment. He confirms that in Isaiah 63. He says this is one of the most famous prophecies of the last days of the, the day of the Lord that every prophecy expert understands. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? I mean, who else are we talking about here? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Now, there is a hill song about mighty to save. I don't think they realize they took it from the Lord stomping his enemies to jam. He is mighty to save by wiping out his enemies. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. (laughs) He's talking about Edom, the exact place, the remnant of Israel was commanded in Matthew 24. When you see the desolation, abomination, desolation, flee to the mountains. That's in reference to Edom. Daniel chapter 11 says this is where they're going to fly to is Edom. So the Lord, the first place he comes is the last place he told them to go hide. So that's a good key. You always obey God. If he tells you to go hang out the brook Cherith, he'll remember you there. If he says go to Edom, he'll come to you first. He told nobody stick around Jerusalem. So consequently, he, they're the second place on the list he goes to. That's why it's always best to obey God and stay right where he wants you, even if it takes faith. <laughs> you can also see Isaiah 34, 1 through 8, and Micah for confirmation of the same prophecy. The second place he goes is Jerusalem. After Basra and Edom, the Lord moves north to deliver the besieged Jerusalem. God will supernaturally draw his enemies to this city. So he has to deal with the enemies there. Everybody in Edom is grape jam and juice. He stomped them. He's wiped them out. And now he moves to Jerusalem to about uh, 30, 40 miles to the northeast or 50 miles to the northeast. Or excuse me, northwest. 
Joel 3 and 3.12 says, I will also gather all nations, will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel. Revelation 14.19, uh, the valley of Jehoshaphat is also the valley of Kidron, the brook Kidron, which divides the Mount, Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. It's, it's, it's the bottom of the Temple Mount. That's the valley of Jehoshaphat. He said, I'm drawing all nations there. That is, I mean, it's Jerusalem. Revelation 14 says, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, that is on the outside of the city, Jerusalem, just like the Bible says Jesus Christ was crucified without the city or outside Jerusalem. And blood came out of the winepress even unto the horses' bridles by the space of 200 miles. That's a lot of blood. The winepress here is the valley Jehoshaphat, also called the valley Kidron. This valley is the eastern border of Jerusalem, separating the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. This is basically Jesus Christ, when he would leave the city of Jerusalem to go pray in the Mount of Olives, he would cross this valley time and time again. He probably went through this valley hundreds of times in his ministry. And if he'd leave Jerusalem and go to the Mount of Olives, he would cross through the brook Kidron, through the valley Kidron, and go up to the other side. Jerusalem will be surrounded by her enemies in one last attempt to annihilate Israel off the map. We have other verses confirming that. So let's look at those, all of them in Zechariah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What day? The last day. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. That day has never happened yet. Zechariah is one of the last prophets of the Bible. He's a prophet of restoration. So what he's prophesying is future tense. Nations is plural. Up until this point, there's only been the Greeks and the Romans. That's, that's the only people who, who have ruled Jerusalem and never have they been wiped out. So this is yet a future tense prophecy. Give me any other day where multitudes of nations will be gathered at Jerusalem's door. Hasn't happened yet. Zechariah 14 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. That has yet to happen. That's this final day. In that great wave of persecution with the abomination desolation, Antichrist forces will take Jerusalem, rape the women, plunder the houses. Half the city will be preserved. Half of it will be in exile for three, three and a half years. And finally, the Lord will say enough and he'll come back and deliver Jerusalem. But then again, Matthew 24 says, when you see the Antichrist break the covenant, don't stay in Jerusalem. Don't even stay in Judea. Get out of Dodge. But yet they'll use the same excuses as a lot of Christians today. Well, I have a job. Well, this, this, is, this is my hometown. Well, you don't understand. I got family here. So maybe your family is the one that gets raped and plundered. Or maybe you're part of the family that have to get to stay. We don't know. But 2,000 years ago, the Lord was still speaking to his people that haven't even been born yet, perhaps, what to do in the day that the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel. So this day is yet to happen. This is all speaking of the second battle on the campaign on the day of the Lord. Uh, 12 and 14 says, And this shall be the plague where the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. This is the raiders of the lost ark thing. Their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. 
and Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. This is the second stop on the day of the Lord. And he delivers his people who are still in Jerusalem. Uh, you can also see Zechariah in Joel 3. Blood will fill this valley about five feet deep for over 180 miles. Now, this actually makes sense because the Valley Jezreel is a very steep and narrow valley. And it has a brook running through it. So you can imagine, he stomps the horses, he stomps the riders. It mixes with the melting hailstones that have fallen in the last plague. And the water, and you can get blood pretty quick, five feet deep, for 100, well, actually 180 to 200 miles down the wadi. A wadi is like a term for a desert valley until uh, you get down into the uh, Sea of Galilee, or is it the Dead Sea further down? But that's what the Bible says, Dead Sea. Yeah. That's a lot of troops to be squished. But we pointed out last week, how many people can really be left after so much death has taken place? The church is raptured, and plague after plague, after earthquake, after tsunami, after catastrophe has wiped out people. How many folks have been crucified or martyred or beheaded? Really, what's the population at this point? It may not be many, it, you know, you look at Jerusalem and think, how can the nations of the world? Well, it may just be a couple thousand of every nation left, which may be, again, like we said last week, why they're on horses. Because, you know, you in the military, you understand what a supply chain it takes to fuel a Humvee and put chow in the back of the thing. It, it's a tremendous work effort. Horses are a little easier. <laughs> yeah. From here, the Lord moves 50 miles north to the Valley of Jezreel to the place known as Armageddon. This is a place we've all heard about. The final battle of the campaign takes place at Armageddon, Revelation 16, 16. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Armageddon comes from the, uh, the Hebrew Armageddon or the mountain of rendezvous. Well, yeah, that's a little ironic. <laughs> I'm going to rendezvous with the Lord. Yeah, that's not going to go so well for you. Armageddon, uh, excuse me, the location is also called the play of Esdraelion and the Jezreel Valley. Same name for the same place. Three significant mountains overlook the valley, which all have biblical stories associated with them. Tabor, Gilboa, and Carmel. Because of its immense size, this valley is 95 square miles, which is pretty significant. Because of its flat geography for infantry, numerous overlooking hills for artillery and the Mediterranean Sea a short distance to the west for naval support, it's considered the perfect place on the planet to wage war. It is also the single bloodiest piece of ground on the planet, having been the location for more military conflict than any other parcel of ground on the earth. Consider the following historical generals in the battles that were fought in this exact valley. The first that we have any record of is Thotmes III of Egypt. And he said, uh, you know, you can look at 3,500 years ago, Megiddo, this valley, is worth a thousand cities. So he founded the Egyptian empire, and he came up that far north and fought battles there. Then you have Ramesses, which you've heard of. Barak from the Bible defeated the Canaanites there. Gideon from the Bible, defeated the Midianites there. Sargon, Sennacherib. You have Josiah. He came out and he met Pharaoh Necho there. Pharaoh Necho was coming out to fight the, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And Pharaoh Necho from Egypt said, King Josiah, God Almighty is with me. Do not get in my way. He has commanded me to be swift. Josiah would not listen. And Pharaoh Necho killed Judah's last good king. That you know God was dealing with other people in his covenant or in his relationship. Pharaoh Necho says, Almighty Jehovah is with me. 
You can read it there. I gave you the scriptures. Don't get in my way, Josiah. Josiah is the last good king Judah had. And what's Josiah do? Interfere with what God's doing through another nation. <laughs> and the very folks that uh, Pharaoh Necho is going to confront are the ones that end up taking Jerusalem captive. Leave them alone. You never know when your deliverance is coming through someone you don't like. Nebuchadnezzar fought battles there. Ptolemy fought battles there. Antiochus Epiphanes fought battles there. Pompey, Titus, Corsu, the Persian, Omar, St. Louis of France through the Crusades fought battles there with the Saracens. And, of course, Saladin, the the great Muslim, fought and and took uh, Jerusalem back there. And then the Ottoman forces. There's a lot of battles been fought here. Here at Armageddon, the armies of the world will gather themselves together in anticipation for the Lord's return in order to fight against him and defeat him. How deceived do you have to be to think you can fight against God? Yeah. So, Revelation 19. And I saw the beast, Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. They're gathered together to make war and to fight against Jesus Christ and his armies. And the be- <laughs> here's what the Bible says about the battle. And the beast was taken. <laughs> and with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with, with which he had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped the image. These both were cast alive into a lake of burning fire. So they show up to make war. And the next thing the Bible says is, and the Lord picked those two guys up and threw them into the lake of fire alive. What kind of battle is that? It doesn't even say any strategy. It doesn't, no. They showed up to make war, and the beast and the false prophet were taken. I can almost see the Lord with two little fingers picking them up by the naps of their neck like little kittens and just casting them into the lake of fire alive. It doesn't even bother to kill them. This entire war with its three battles only lasts one day. <laughs> Jesus Christ does all the fighting and his enemies do all the dying. <laughs> Amen. That brings us to the supper of the great God. Because this further shows the Lord's sense of humor and his judgment and his vindication. Revelation 19 says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Oh, the birds are invited. Notice this angel causes birds to supernaturally come from all over the earth. That you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Uh, one verse says that this, they eat for seven, I think it's seven months. The birds eat for seven months in these battlegrounds. The great supper of God was prophesied by Job, Ezekiel, and Jesus Christ. And by God's will, the world's fiercest warriors will become bird food. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's humorous. Here they are to fight against God, and God just looks at them, and they become instant bird food. They have no idea what they're marching to, and yet they want to. That triumphant touchdown. We've covered a lot in 45 minutes. I'm actually going to wrap this one up quicker than I've done any of the others. Until this point in the future narrative about what's going to happen in the day of the Lord, there's no evidence the Lord has touched his foot upon the earth. But we have record where he does finally put his foot down. After the final battle at Armageddon, the Valley of Jezreel, 
he will finally touch down on the Mount of Olives. This is the very place from whence he ascended into heaven in the book of Acts. So he's yet to touch down. But when he finally does at the end of this day, it's on the Mount of Olives. And that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, the day of the Lord. Anytime he talks about that day, it's always a reference to the day of the Lord, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half the mountains will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord shall be the only one and his name the only one. Praise God. Because he will have wiped out every other king, every other leader. It is from the Mount of Olives that he begins to distribute and establish his millennial kingdom. We'll get into it next week. But this valley that's formed supernaturally when he touches down. Other uh, eschatology experts believe this becomes the valley of Jehoshaphat. Where all the kings and the nations are supernaturally judged. Because there is a judgment of the nations. There's kind of a doctrine. And again, we say it's... We don't know for sure because it hasn't panned out yet. It hasn't come to pass. So we try to put our best understanding on it. But the valley of Jehoshaphat is either the valley Kidron... Five feet deep in blood. So there has to be a literal judgment there. Or Joel talking about multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That may be this valley that supernaturally opens up when the Lord is done killing his enemies. And that may be the valley with which he draws the nations or what's left of them to judge them. We do know that the judgment of all nations happens after the battle of Armageddon. So there may be a twofold application to the valley of Jehoshaphat from Joel chapter 2 and Joel chapter 3. We'll cover that next week when we talk about the final judgments and the millennial reign of Christ. But I want you to see, he finally touches down. I don't even think he broke a sweat. I don't think he could break a sweat if he wanted to. But he, just the brightness of his coming has destroyed his enemies. And now he touches down on the exact same place he left 2,000 plus years earlier, causes things to be divided, and begins to establish his millennial kingdom. With all of his enemies dead, the Antichrist and the false prophet in hell, and Satan bound, and we'll cover that next week, Jesus Christ will be free to establish his millennial kingdom. Hallelujah. See, what's not fair is this took me 30 hours to write and 45 minutes to teach. And no, no telling how many hours to study all this out. But... Go back and study, those, especially those things about Edom and Bosra. There's more scripture in here than we had time to cover. I, I read this stuff. It causes my heart to soar. I, you know, you're, you're pulling for the champ. You're like, go get them. Yeah. I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be on a horse beside you saying, cool. Glad I got born again. Wish you guys had of. But at that point, there won't be any mercy. It's time. It's done. Amen. I trust you guys are learning stuff out of this. We're almost done with these lessons. This has been a very grueling study for me because this is not my expertise or, but there's, there's so much in it and it, sh- it has encouraged me so much Father I thank you for blessing our Sunday school bless these lessons as they become pod schools and all those that listen to the pod school in the future I thank you Father for helping our understanding in these end times Lord even if we're wrong on uh, some points or two or three points in the end we're not going to care because we're going to be in total victory Lord, you know we study and teach this as the best we can see. You proclaim that we see through a glass darkly. We thank you that one day we'll get to see you face to face, and then we will be known even as you were known. Lord, help us to love you and to be hungry for more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.